the biggest risk for me is not running out of money. It's running out of curiosity and passion. So if I notice Mm. that is dwindling, it's like all hands alert. I need to do something different. I'm hanging out with the wrong people. I'm not being active. I'm not getting enough sunlight. I'm not like getting enough space away from my work. I'm not writing enough. I'm not reading enough. So I'm always trying to like rejigger that. And I'm currently in like a reset process. I want to go deeper. I want to like write more this year in like a deeper, more thoughtful way. And yeah, it's a, it's a constant process. If you don't like re-shifting your day and constantly analyzing and experimenting like this path is not for you. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone looking to think deeper and work smarter. In every episode, I speak with makers, thinkers, and innovators to help you get more out of life. This week, I'm speaking with Paul Millard. Paul is a writer and consultant. He's the author of The Pathless Path, which is an incredible book. And we spent a lot of time talking about the book and a lot of the ideas around it. We talked a lot about this idea of a default path, the path that you find yourself on, and how easy it can be to craft narratives about why you are where you are and why that was what you wanted all along. And then we talked about this idea of stepping off that path and finding your own and being able to nurture your curiosity and creativity and see where that leaves you. And then we talked about Paul's journey from consulting to creator and a lot of the challenges that come with being a creator, how you need to lean into uncertainty and what that can unlock. So there was a lot of gems in this episode. You're going to love this. If you have any aspirations at all of being a creator or following your curiosity, finding your own path, if you feel like the default is not necessarily what was best for you, it's not necessarily something that you chose and you want some inspiration or some guidelines on how you can step off that, you should definitely listen to this and also check out Paul's book. He also has a podcast, which is the Pathless Path podcast, and he writes online at Boundless. You can get the full show notes, transcript, and read my newsletter at theknowledge.io. Every week I share some of the best tools, ideas, and frameworks that I come across from business, psychology, philosophy, and productivity. So if you want the best that I have to share, you can get that in the newsletter at theknowledge.io. You can find Paul online on Twitter at P underscore Millard and on his website at think-boundless. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps us tremendously to reach other listeners just like you. As an additional note, if you're listening to this on a podcast player, you should be aware we also have full video recordings for most of these episodes on YouTube and you can find clips and different things on social media. All the links will be in the description below. Thanks. I think where I'd love to start is you have a really interesting background, particularly from the sense that, you know, it fits within your narrative. You wrote this book called The Pathless Path, and a lot of what you talk about is this idea of breaking away from the stereotypical path that we are all, or many of us, are pushed down, particularly from a young age. And I think what's interesting about your journey is that there are some people that might come to that conclusion after falling off the tracks and feeling like they were already lost and then coming to determination that it was fine. I was on the right path all along. But you took the very stereotypical path going to GE and McKenzie and all of the places that, you know, you took the path. <laughs> so I'm really interested in, first of all, the journey of getting there. What was that like for you? And then what made you feel like it was fine to give up having already achieved what many people work so hard to achieve yeah well first off thanks for having me david i'm excited for this convo and appreciate the work you're doing for me i i did not grow up around like status and like prestigious world and so when i found out about them i was just like any young driven person that was like like i I need to go after those things. Shiny, impressive. I could be, I could attach myself to those and feel special, right? A lot of that was unconsciously happening. But 
Yeah. When I found out about strategy consulting in college, one, I was like, this is so cool and interesting. So like my curiosity was ignited. And two is like, why didn't I know about this? This is so impressive. They're recruiting from the Ivy Leagues. Why can't I do this? And I hated that I was like not in allowed in that circle. So I worked so hard just to like break in and ultimately failed my senior year of college. After six months of GE, I started applying like a maniac again. And as I write in my book, I kept getting rejected from like almost every company. And the only one that gave me a shot would just happen to be the number one consulting firm, McKinsey and Company. So it felt a little silly, like getting there. Like on the outside, people are like, oh, wow, that's such an impressive job change. And inside, I'm like, what the heck? I, I got rejected from all the like lower ranked firms. So I was just so grateful for that opportunity and so excited that I got to work at a place like McKinsey. I experienced this disconnect right away when I worked there of this is amazing. Like the training is actually way better than GE. The problems are way more interesting. The people treat me way better. So I actually really enjoyed my time in consulting in the early years. I think the thing that changed once I was in that world is everyone there is obsessed about constantly moving, constantly achieving the next step, the next job, the next impressive achievement. And I got caught up in that And to be honest, like I wish I had just stayed at McKinsey for five years and then quit and started my own thing. Like that probably would have been the best path for me. But everyone I knew at the company was leaving to go to business school or law school or grad school or going to work at some other impressive company. So I got caught up in, okay, I need to have my next step too. I went to business school. And when I went to business school, I was just like a bit lost. I thought, oh, I'll go work in healthcare. Maybe I'll go work in industry. I just went back to consulting because I couldn't come up with a plan. And I bounced around for five years. And under the surface, like I just kept wanting to learn and start from scratch and like work with people who challenge me. But the better you get at consulting, like the learning slows. And what you're incentivized to learn about is how do you act like other people? How do you just go with the flow? How do you play politics? And man, I just couldn't do that stuff. (laughs) So it was like very easy for me to walk away because I'm not good at like playing politics and pretending I care about some fake company purpose. Like I just don't care. So yeah, that's kind of the long answer to your question. That's fair. How long did it take you to figure that out? Because obviously you'd been at McKinsey prior to going to business school and you were there for a while. How long did it take for you to get to whatever the point was where things clicked that you said, ah, this isn't it? Yeah, so business school was when I think I became lost. That was 2010. And I also just started to prioritize like learning and like I wasn't optimizing for my career. That kind of came back to bite me because my second year of business school, I got rejected from all the consulting firms again. I think reflecting back, what happened is that I didn't really have a clear direction or story of where I was going. And I was in the same interviews as other incredibly polished, smart, capable, and good storyteller peers. And they were like, what is Paul doing? He has no idea what he wants. Eventually got a job at a small consulting firm, went to BCG after that, and then went to an executive search firm. So it took five years after business school to like really figure it out. And it was mostly just like floundering around, going from job to job. And before I quit my job, I was applying for more jobs. I was applying to work in tech or in trying to explore jobs in people operations. So the reality is, is it's like, this is so common with people. It's sort of this like, looking back, it seems so obvious that I just should have done my own thing because I enjoy it so much, but it was never obvious. I kind of had to like fail and misstep and move around to different jobs to slowly realize, oh, I need to just go take a chance on myself. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think a lot of what you said resonates with me very strongly, particularly there was one thing that you were saying that just made me think about this idea that there's a default path and there's no point at which you choose the default path. You just fall into it. And I think that was very apparent to me. So I came to the UK from Nigeria. So being an immigrant and kind of not being from, I guess, this default path and realizing how quickly you fall in line and then you're whisked along on on this journey. And I remember feeling very unprepared and very just 
I didn't have all the knowledge, all the resources. And suddenly I was at a point where, okay, I have to start applying for things. I have to start making decisions. And I think the interesting thing is that is, this goes towards what you were saying about how you feel like there were other people that had much better narratives of what they wanted to do and how they wanted to be in the world. It made me think of a study that I was reading recently, which is just around this idea that we can very quickly come up with post-rationalizations for decisions that we didn't even necessarily make ourselves. So in this study, they asked people to pick a picture and then later on, they show them a picture again, but the picture is not actually the picture that they picked. It was the other one, but they don't tell them that. They say, okay, so why did you pick this picture? And then suddenly people start giving you these elaborate descriptions of, oh, I, you know, I liked it because of, I like landscapes. I liked it because I like this. And so it's very easy for us to create stories and to create narratives for why we are in the position that we already are, whether or not it was intentional, whether or not we actually made the choice to put ourselves into that position. And I think the same very much applies to our careers, where there's a lot of people that can very easily construct post-rationalizations for, oh, I'm going in this direction because that's where I always wanted to be. This is everything that I always dreamed of. But really, you might not have gone through all the steps of thinking, is this actually what I want? Have I considered other options, etc.? Yeah, I think in some sense, I'm like, an immigrant to the high status prestige world. Like I didn't grow up in the soup of that culture. And maybe you experience this as well. Like the people that have good stories, like they grew up like thinking I'm supposed to be a partner at McKinsey, like having to like generate <laughs> that enthusiasm. Like I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so like eventually I'm like outcompeted by these people that grew up like thinking they're supposed to be following these paths. Yeah. And experience the same thing. It always was mystifying to me that people would be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't like this job. Like I need to find something else. And then boom, they're offered a promotion, $40,000 more. And they're like all in again. It's like, what happened? Like, you're just gonna, you're just gonna throw everything away. You just said you claim to, you care about. And I realized like most people will just drift along to whatever carrots appear in front of them. And I think I've not, I've just not wanted to that to happen to me. And so it's hard. Like the reality is if you want to carve your own path, you constantly need to be reflecting. You're incredibly humbled all the time. And I think now the only difference is like I sort of internalize how stupid I am and what I mean by that is like I am going to be distracted by things I am going to be carried away by things I don't know if I'm interested in so the benefit of this path is it's so uncertain it's changing so much you're working on so many different things that like you constantly need to check in and reflect whereas on my previous path it seemed like everyone sort of just stumbled along okay I'll do this for two years and then oh some something appears in front of me that drifts me in a new direction. What I like about being on my own is like that sort of happens like every week. It's like, well, what should I be working on? Even with like a combo like this, should I talk to David? There's no like framework for thinking about this, but it's like a constant bet of, okay, I'm going to talk with David, see how I feel. How is my energy after that? I'm not like judging it based on like metrics or outcomes or like book sales or anything. It's more like, okay, reflecting back in a week, a month, do I like how I spent my time? And for the most part, I've realized I love podcast conversations, especially with people like you, because you're on a similar path and you're deeply curious. And like, I'm probably going to get a few great ideas just from this conversation. Yeah, I think going back to what you were saying just about the reason people don't leave the original path, I think a lot of it is fear. And, and funnily enough, everything that you were saying that can end up being a benefit once you've left the path can seem like the negatives before you've left the path that you are on, right? It's this idea of uncertainty. What will my days look like? What will I be doing? Yeah, people say, yeah, there's all the, I've heard all these fears, right? Are you worried about going broke? aren't you worried about not knowing what you'll do with your time? It's like, yes. Yeah, I'm worried about all that. <laughs> and people are shocked when I say that. What they're assuming is that the whole point of life is to avoid your fears. The benefit of this is I get to grapple with them every day and come up with solutions. I am afraid of running out of money. I am afraid of embarrassing myself. I am afraid of not knowing what I'm doing. But that's also 
the opposite of that is like facing those and coming up with working strategies. It's like you're more in the flow of life rather than like, I think what happens in like full-time work environments is that people are sort of locked in this silent conspiracy of saying, if you don't mention that we're, we have these underlying fears, I won't mention it. <laughs> and we can just pretend nobody has any insecurities or fears and we have everything figured out. It's like, I didn't like that because I kept bringing up the questions and people would be like, shh, shh, <laughs> don't say these things. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting paradigm when I think about it as well. This idea of fear. Okay, so maybe that there's two parts to this. One is I think people fundamentally misunderstand. Loads of people are fans of The Matrix, but we misunderstand what Morpheus was trying to say to Neo when he gave him the choice of the two pills. And when people talk about it, they talk about the blue pill like it's the bad thing, when actually the blue pill is for many people, the great thing, it's comfort and it is stasis. The monsters are not going to chase yeah. you and kill you. There's not going to be aliens showing up on your doorstep. You can just have a nice, calm, happy life. Don't worry about any of the other stuff that's going on. It's choosing the red pill that's choosing this life of danger and reckless abandon and anything could happen to you. But there are also the opportunities that great things could happen. So I think the blue pill, the standard life is neither of the two. You don't get the worst sides of life and you don't get the exponential positives that you could get from starting your own thing or just figuring things out. And so I think that is the balance there. But also, I love what you were saying about this idea of the silent fears that kind of lie unseen, because simultaneously, and I think I've heard you mention this before, what I find really interesting is when you're chasing status and you're chasing money and you're chasing a lot of the things that the traditional path espouses, there is also this idea that it's never enough. And so you have people that are making 50, 60, 70, 100K, 150K, and they're saying, I'm poor. Well, I, I also say this to be fair. <laughs> I also say this, and I'm also stuck in this same trap where you're like, oh, I can't afford to have kids. I can't afford to have all this stuff that I want. Well, you're in London, right? Yes. Yeah, true. Yeah. So it's expensive. Very expensive. But Just leave London. <laughs> that's probably what i need to do but i think there's a really weird dichotomy where look the average salary in london actually london is a great example from the statistics i've seen the average salary is like thirty-three thousand pounds it's not a lot of money and so for people that are earning if you're earning like six figures or more it's weird that on one hand maybe it doesn't feel like enough because it doesn't feel like it it stretches but then simultaneously the majority of people in the country are having families, are happy, are doing whatever they're doing on much less. And so I think there's an extent to which you could still find a way. So I think there is still this fear. You never really escape the fear and you have to keep spiraling upwards. That's the incentive anyway. Yeah, I I do think these fears can evaporate in a sense. So I think I've resolved some of my money fears. And okay. I did it by basically living on extremely low income for mm. a few years and going several stretches of time earning zero money. And basically what I did is I stopped spending money. And I realized like that is a possibility. So like I'm going to have a kid in March. I'm having it. We're having a daughter. I'm not really afraid of money because what greater incentive to like solve problems than like my daughter's well-being. <laughs> That's sort of solved. And another thing that just gave me confidence, and I think something I bet on early is like, I had this idea, I need to make money in a, like 50 different ways, right? And every like minor way of making money, even if it's 20 bucks, gives me confidence. It's, oh, I could do things, right? Mm. And like my worst case is going to like get a job. But the thing is like what people are saying when they say I can't afford kids, they're not actually saying that. Because that's nonsense, right? Like you said, the average salary in London is 33,000 pounds, right? The same thing in the US. People are doing it every day, right? And what they're saying is, I can't raise kids in the way I want with a very low levels of stress. What they've done is baked in a certain way of living life that is very expensive and stressful. The base assumption is, both parents work, make a lot of money, buy nice things, live in a very expensive place, own a home, have nannies, daycare, expensive vacations, expensive cars, right? What they're saying is, I'm worried about losing my status, and that is terrifying. 
I rather just stay in this world of like this upper middle class lifestyle and follow that. The thing is like, I think the upshot of doing your own thing for a while is like experimenting with different lifestyles, living in different places, stop. We like rarely eat at restaurants, like going out to eat. I used to eat at restaurants all the time when I was employed and making a steady salary. It's like, I just don't enjoy it. It fell out of my life and nothing changed about my happiness. My happiness has not been correlated to how much money I've made. When I was making 24 grand in my first couple of years, I was super happy. I had so much time and flexibility. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are just pricing their time wrong. Yeah, I think the happiness thing is a key factor. And it reminds me of Mo Gaudat, who used to work at Google, has a happiness equation. I think he's written a book by the same name. But essentially, the idea is you become happy by changing your level of expectations. And happiness is the difference between your reality and your expectations. And very often, it's not saying that you shouldn't expect anything from life. And it's not saying you should lower your expectations and the negative connotations that come with that. But it's the fact that we very often expect so much as though it must happen. And then because we expect so much, when whenever we have anything less than that, we feel frustrated and we feel dissatisfied. And I think that's exactly what you were saying, where it feels as though because we've already decided that the status quo, that the baseline that we will accept is status and it is wealth and it is all of these things, then anything short of that feels like disappointment. It feels like sadness. Whereas if you were to take a step back and reevaluate that completely, like you were saying, even when you were earning much less than you had been previously and much less than you could have been, suddenly you can be happier because you can untangle yourself from all of the assumptions that were trapping you before. Yeah, I I sort of have this line is, have you tested that? People will say to me, oh, I could never do what you're doing. I'm like, have you tested that? Like, how do you know? This comes back to what you were saying at the beginning. We're sort of dumb about what we think we want. And I sort of default to not trusting my like first instinct. Well, not like first instinct, just like my first reaction to something. Do I, and around wanting. And I was making like 150 grand in New York. I was paying like 2,100 a month for rent. And right before I quit my job, we... I moved with a roommate and we had this luxury apartment in Long Island City overlooking the New York skyline. It was like beautiful. I moved from there to Boston after I realized, shit, I'm burning so much cash in New York City and moved in with four other 23 and 24 year olds in Boston. We had one bathroom. I was paying $800 a month. We had all sorts of issues with the house. It was very old and I was so happy. I uh, I lowered my cost of living. My runway was extended. I like finally landed a freelance client. So I was sort of like covering my cost of living. And I spent a lot of time wandering, reading. And like one of the guys was like a bartender and he was like a dropout of a PhD program at Brown. And like we talked about philosophy all day and it was super fun. I was like, this is great. And like people would say to me, oh, I can never do what you're doing. That's so crazy. I can't believe like we have these scripts we run in our head. Guys do this, right? Oh, no, no woman will take me serious if I'm not having my own apartment, right? It's nonsense. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I met my wife and I was renting a room at an Airbnb with two other travelers and like a host who was like creepy. Didn't matter. And the thing is, what we're really what's really behind that is I don't feel confident if I don't have my own place. When I met my wife, like I felt really good about myself for like basically the first time in my life. And I think that's why I like finally had the space to let a relationship blossom because like I liked myself. I liked who I was showing up at. I was making zero dollars a month (laughs) when I met her and like living on spending like 800 a month. And I didn't let that define me as being a failure or anything like that. And like my wife jokes, oh, buy low (laughs) with me. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't think people test that much. I think It's very easy if you're like an educated person to just go in the slipstream and assume like life is supposed to go like nicer things, more money. Like one of the greatest things that ever happened to me is I lowered my cost of living and sort of got lost, dramatically lowered my income and got lost for a few years. And now I feel so free because I know I'm going to be okay no matter what. 
Yeah. So an interesting question that I have is very much following on from what you were saying. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this now that are saying exactly what your friends said, which is, that sounds great, but how could I ever do that? How do you get to a point where you're okay with that? Do you think people are thinking that? I feel like people that are listening to you are already probably like pretty open-minded. And if they've made it this far in the conversation... So this is something I think about. I think they're just like, I am not here to serve those people. I don't know how to help them. I'm not wired like them. I am here to serve the people that probably are listening right now who are like, ooh, this is interesting. How can I use this information to like remix my life, upgrade my life, improve myself? I think there's so many of those people. Many of them have jobs. They're probably like me and you who were like in those jobs and a bit confused. Yeah, I don't know what to say to those other people. So what I'm saying, like, I think they should probably shouldn't follow me or look to me for wisdom. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think I think some of them do agree, right? I think so what I was trying to get at is what I find very often is that the essence of it is a lot of people know what they need to do and just don't have the bravery or the courage to do it, or they don't know, you know, something has to push them to jump. They have to almost imagine what the safety net is going to be or or what the almost what the path is going to be. A lot of people are afraid to lean into the discomfort because sometimes there truly is nothing and there truly is no structure on the other side of the jump. But a lot of people want to imagine, okay, I can see the benefits of making a leap, but there is no, I guess there's no mental safety in what's on the other side. So I have a chapter in my book called Wonder Tips of Scale. And I've seen this over and over again. The risks never disappear. Even now, the risks are still like clear, obvious, and I feel them. And I do have some like, I basically have like mini existential crises now rather than this abstract worry about, oh my God, what will happen if I take a leap? It's just like, it's priced in to my day. Of course, I worry about it. I pay attention to it. It's like, oh, I see you, Mr. Worry. Like I'll schedule you in around these five minutes every day, but you're, it's going to be okay. I'm going to survive. What tips the scales for people is not figuring out how to manage those worries. It is a sense of wonder for there might be possibilities in my life that could be so exciting, so interesting, so wonderful that I need to step into the uncertainty and just see what will happen. People say these phrases. It's like, yeah, I might fail, but I might stumble into a new way of living or a new way of learning about life that could be so exciting. And I think there's different ways to cultivate that sense of wonder. You do need a certain like optimistic curiosity to take your own path. I think long-term travel, like not a vacation, go somewhere, just don't have plans, just wander. Just get yourself in a new context. Chronic illness is a very effective way. I don't recommend chronic illness, but like I was sick for two years and it sort of like refactored how I looked at life and made things that formerly looked risky to me is not risky at all because I had spent months not being able to work and like really just like stuck. I think moving to a new location can be super powerful for this too, cultivating this sense of wonder. I know psychedelics have worked for some people. I haven't taken that path. Reading books, podcasts, I think are underrated like psychotechnology. You can spend time with someone's vibe in your ears and like sure to open up your mind a little. So like listen to people who are optimistic and exciting and spend hours with David and his podcast. And you're probably going to be a little more excited about life and possibility. But yeah, you need that wonder. If your whole frame is like, what if I can't replace my income? I have no idea. I didn't like match my income until this year, my fifth year. I have no idea how to do that in the first couple of years. I didn't pull it off. Yeah. So how do you pick what to do next? Because I think you tried a few things or more so went through a few iterations. I know with like Strategy U, with trying to teach consulting to people and all the steps that led to you to writing your book. I still, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like Making it up as I go. I told my wife yesterday, I'm like, this is the weirdest path. Like I constantly have the sense of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how like the next year is going to turn out. I really try to just pay attention to my energy and I listen. I also listen to what people are asking for and I really take things pretty slow. So like, I guess there are a few things. Some things I try to turn, I, like 
I try generally to go from idea to action very quick. How can I test things as quick as possible? I think one of the biggest traps when you're on a path like this is letting ideas just like bubble around, right? So I've shortened the time from bubbling around in my head to action, right? So it's like a lot of people have this idea, oh, I should do a podcast. How can you just like as quick as possible get six episodes out, right? If you're aiming to like crush it and maximize your spot in the rankings, I don't know how to do that. But I do know how to like quickly test things. And on this path, testing things, trying things, action, that's information. Information is super valuable. Information about your energy, your excitement, like even like financial, like are you making money from this is super valuable. That can help you decide what to do next. So for the past two years, I've been doing six weeks on, one week off. And I use that one week off to like reflect and like set intentions for the next six weeks. And that has sort of helped me like try a bunch of stuff in six weeks blocks and then assess, okay, what do I want to do next? Do I want to double down? Do I want to quit those things? And I'm actually quitting the like I would send a letter to people at the beginning of the six week block to kind of hold myself accountable. I'm actually winding that down because like I think I've like internalized the process now and I can do it on my own. But yeah, I I don't really know what I'm doing this year. I'm doing like I'm running Strategy U, which is like a course teaching consulting skills. I have my book. I'm leaning into my podcast. My podcast didn't really make money until this year. But after my book, I decided to double down on it because it was something that brought me alive. And like that is just one of my principles coming alive over getting ahead is doubling down on the thing that's making me money, but not bringing me alive. The podcast was like my lowest revenue thing. It still doesn't really make much money if at all, but I'm going to just keep going with it. It just feels true and real in, in the flow of life. And I don't know what where it will lead me. So that's kind of how I decide just follow the vibe of what I'm excited by. I love that. So earlier, just before we started recording, we were talking about writing books. And I'd love to know, I mean, what sparked that in you? What gave you the nerve to think that you could write a book? And how has that process been for you, particularly going down the self-published path? And I think that's what makes it interesting, because usually in the traditional paradigm, you work with a traditional publisher, it's almost like the publishers choose you, even if you are pitching to them, they validate you and they validate your idea and they decide, okay, This is worthy of being shared. Whereas traditionally publishing, you have to self-validate and you have to say, I am worthy of sharing this idea. This idea is worthy of being shared. And then you actually have to go out and do it. Yeah. So I didn't care about a book as I need to be successful and sell a bunch of copies and make money. I like writing. I figured out I liked writing about five years ago. When I was in Taiwan, I moved there and like just had a lot of time and space and kept realizing, oh, I like writing. I keep showing up and writing. So I set this mantra for myself, write most days. And I did that for three, four years. At the end of that and in 2020, a lot of people started getting curious about their relationship to work. And I just kept talking to tons of people about work and writing about what I was finding. And at the end of 2020, I had four or five people say to me, you should write a book. You have all these ideas. And I sat with that. I was with a friend, Johnny Miller, who's another uh, Brit. And I was like, Johnny, should I write a book? He's like, yeah, definitely. And this is the great thing. Like you should always have like other creator unconventional friends because they'll cheer you on and just they won't laugh at what you want to do. And so like for me, a book like I design everything around my stubbornness and laziness. I don't like to work a lot and I don't like to work for other people. So I've had jobs. I don't want another job. So like publishing was just like, I don't want to do that. I don't want a manager. I don't want a slow process. I don't want to be part of meetings. Sounds freaking terrible. So like, basically, I wanted to write a book because I want to write a book. And the crazy thing is like how successful the book has been. If you had asked me like what success would been, I would have been like, I don't know, maybe like 500 copies. And like by the end of all of 2022, I probably sold like 9,300 copies which is just like so crazy. And I think it's helped me realize like a book turns a bunch of web of ideas into something that's digestible. It's sort of like an on-ramp. It's like the greatest Mm on-ramp to someone's writing. And it made me realize there's 
Like I had 2,500 newsletter subscribers when I started writing my book. I now have like, when I launched my book, I think I had 5,000. And so I've sold more books than people that were on my newsletter. And it's made me realize that your audience is probably way bigger than you think, your potential audience, because newsletters and like podcast subscribers, they may be small audiences, but they're highly resonant audiences. Right. They're people that are like, hell yeah. And I think those are just undervalued. Right. And publishers want like massive audiences when they're trying to choose people to do books. And they're sort of taking advantage of the fact that they know people's books are going to succeed. I just want to own my own stuff and play my own game and figure things out. I think part of why I wrote it myself and figured everything out along the way is like, I just want to help other people do the same. And it's just like fun for me to do that. But yeah, I think more people should write books. More creators should write books. As soon as people are like, you should write a book because I don't know where to start. And you have a lot of stuff written. Yeah. I think our mutual friend, uh, David Canavi, talks about that. But the idea that everyone should write a book. Yeah. And he's really seeing the returns on that now. I love that David shares his income reports. And the returns for him are really starting to take off. He's published like 10 mini ebooks on Amazon and like a few books. And it was like his second or third book that re- mind management, not time management that really took off. So I'd suggest like people check out his stuff and you can get to a point. It seems from looking at what David's doing that if your book reaches a critical mass, it might just sell indefinitely, <laughs> which is kind of mind blowing. And yeah, it's just like, it's really hard to understand the scale of the internet. I think what you're doing is still so rare and so many people could benefit from hearing your story that like, just like let it rip, put everything out there, write a book, tell your story. Like it's so helpful to so many people. And the thank you notes I've gotten from my book have really just blown me away. The thing you realize is like people spend time with a book, they're like, They're spending time with like your energy and they're going to generate their own ideas. They're going to make their own decisions to like quit their jobs, leave their jobs, carve a different path or whatever. But they're going to appreciate that. Like you took the time to say like, hey, you're not crazy. Here's what I went through. Here's my crazy version of it. Like I want there to be a hundred versions of the pathless path, meaning like I want you to write your story. I like there's just not enough of these stories. Everyone thinks they need to write these books with like frameworks. Here's how to do X, Y, Z. And like a hundred of these pages are built around like the fire framework or the clap framework or the star framework. It's like, no, just like pour your heart in the page, let it rip. Don't worry about page count and put it out there. (laughs) How did you find structuring the writing process or did you structure it at all? Because I think that's another thing that people preemptively perceive as being difficult is how do you go from empty page to finished book? Yeah, it was it was hard. I my first like how I started, I was like, I sort of like lowered the stakes for myself. I'm just going to write an ebook, a collection of my newsletter essays. What I quickly realized is you can't do that in a book. Because my newsletters are all like hyperlinked and interconnected and I re-mentioned stuff and it was like, this is a mess. So I just started organizing. I wrote this all up in a post I can link to too. If you search like blog to book Paul Millard, you'll get my whole guide. But I think my training and consulting help with this as well, which is like a similar process of going into the data and then stepping back and trying to structure the story. So I did that four or five times, head down, write for a couple months, take a week off, disconnect from it, and then like figure out what I have. What is the story? What is the structure? And just did that four or five times. And then the final three months, I worked with an editor that really helped me like land the plane. And yeah, it was just like endless iteration. And I like iteration. So that made the process fun for me. If you don't like that process, like that could be a good reason to like work with a publisher. Or like, I think just finding a really good editor that could partner with you is probably good enough for most people. Fair. Okay. So maybe just slightly outside of that frame, how do you continue to stoke your creativity and your, not productivity, I guess your curiosity? Because I think you mentioned slightly earlier, the power of wandering, right? Whether it's traveling, whether it's wandering around. I think I'd heard you say 
in a previous podcast at one point that I don't think you started reading until you're, well, reading in an intentional way until your early 20s. Reading for curiosity, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So how do you find, I guess, stoking that fire now and, and staying both curious, but also creative and not running out of steam and not feeling like, oh, you run out of ideas, you're hitting a rut. How do you keep yourself going? So I'm very naturally curious. I love learning. I love reading. I spend hours reading every day. I think the thing is I take that serious as a part of my life. And the biggest risk for me is not running out of money. It's running out of curiosity and passion. So if I notice that is dwindling, it's like all hands alert. I need to do something different, right? I'm hanging out with the wrong people. I'm not being active. I'm not getting enough sunlight. I'm not like getting enough space away from my work. I'm not writing enough. I'm not reading enough. So I'm always trying to like rejigger that. And I'm currently in like a reset process. I want to go deeper. I want to like write more this year in like a deeper, more thoughtful way. And I'm like blocking apps. I'm like trying to figure out like what the right time to like block off writing blocks. And yeah, it's a, it's a constant process. If you don't like reshifting your day and constantly analyzing and experimenting, like this path is not for you. But the payoff is so massive. Like I, my life is so amazing. <laughs> like the shift from, for someone like me that loves curiosity and loves being energized and connected to the work I'm doing and ideas, the shift from spending 260 days a year working for other people to 365 days a year spending time on my own terms every day is so massive. Like I can't even articulate how massive that is. Yeah. It's like night and day. And the mode of being, this is what I tell people, don't find a niche. That's like business first thinking, thinking like I need to be a business and then I need to build a operating system around that. Find a mode of life you can show up in consistently. And if you find that, everything else opens up. I love that. That's really... Yeah, really great framing. Because I was just thinking about when I first started my newsletter and then eventually the podcast. I think I actually started the podcast before the newsletter, but the podcast was called something different and it's evolved about three or four times in the journey. But with the newsletter, I think my intention was, look, I'm not going to say this is going to be weekly, but I'm going to try and write it weekly and I'm just going to try and keep writing. And that was a few years ago. And I think the impetus for me was not so much, it took a while to find exactly what the newsletter was about. If you go back and look at the first 10, they were all about something completely different. But I think the aim for me was that, look, I'm just going to share the things that I'm learning and it's going to push me to keep reading and to keep learning and to keep being curious. And if I ever get to a point where I have nothing to write about, then that tells me that actually I'm doing something wrong. That's not a question of there isn't something to be written about. It's a question of, you know, am I learning enough? Am I reading enough? Am I being curious enough to go out and find those things? Yeah. And you'll know you've found a mode worth being in if you stop doing those things and you miss it or you're like, something's off. I need to get back to writing. That's how I felt about writing in that probably four years ago. And Anytime I stop writing or stop creating or I'm not reading books, I just feel off. And I know to get back to center, it's diving back into those things. And it doesn't feel like work to me. It's so fun when I'm doing it. But we get distracted just like anyone else. Does it always feel fun? Because so the, the follow-up question that I want to ask is, how do you keep going when things get difficult? Particularly knowing what you have left behind or what you could go back to. And I think that is always maybe for some people, something that is lurking in the background, like when things are getting rocky, particularly you mentioned before, there's a few years where maybe you, you might not be earning as much as you thought you would be or as much as you would like to be. So how do you keep going and keep pushing forward even when things don't come easy or naturally or quickly? I design for liking work. So I'm ruthless about this. Even if there's an economic opportunity, I won't pursue it. Like, I can't even muster up the energy to do it unless I'm excited about it. So I really just start with that. And the first few years, I made 24 grand, 32 grand, 40 grand. That's like pre-tax too and pre-expenses. I am 
just stubborn. I don't want a job. I don't want to work for somebody else. And I want to stay in this path. And one of the ways I do that is I am not that risk seeking. I'm very risk averse. I have a lot more cash than makes sense financially. If I was working in a job, I'd probably have much more invested for the future. Right now, I just have more cash and I build cash reserves as my FU fund. I want to stay on this path. I want to keep going. And if I make half of what I make this year, next year, I'll be fine. I can keep going. And that's really what it's all about. I'm not trying to maximize income or follow any sort of script about where I should be. I just want to keep going on this current slipstream I'm in, which is really fun. I found work that does lead to money. And I just want to see how it turns out. Fair. There's one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. So I wrote a while ago a post which was about, I think it was a newsletter, which was about the idea that like rules don't exist. And so there's a lot of things that people say, this is the way, these are the rules. And actually, they're not. And, and all you have to do is pretend they don't exist and suddenly the world opens up. But as part of that, one of the ideas that I talked about was this idea of desire paths. And so, you know, when city planners or park planners are designing what the park should look like, they draw all these paths however they like doing it. But over time, people start walking off and just creating their own paths. And then slowly over time, you get all of these kind of like earthy paths that develop because either people are taking the most straightforward way instead of following the the well-designed path all the way around, or they're wandering off and going and getting lost. And suddenly now future people that come along get to reap the benefits of, oh, here's another path I can follow. But what I find interesting as a paradigm to regular life is that the desire path often becomes the path. Once enough people have taken this weird route, then it seems almost like the default. Now everyone wants to go down this route. So school is an example of this, where before, a long, long time ago, Further education was something that was elective. You had to really care about wanting to study philosophy or wanting to study something. You go, you sit with some master, you sit with a few people and they tell you all this stuff. You are taking time out of your life to go and do this when everyone else is going to work. Whereas now that's the default. You actually have to do this before you even get to do any work. And then I think the the next level of that is, okay, so now everyone's going to school, then you have some people that drop out of school. They drop out of school, they build a startup, they go on and do this thing. Now everyone wants to drop out of school and build a startup and go and do this thing. And I'm interested to know, like you see people talking now about like the creator economy and this idea that actually everyone is going to be some kind of one person business where they're going to have their own thing and they're going to, do you think that is, what do you think about this idea that eventually everyone kind of operates as a creator in some capacity and everyone has a book, everyone has a podcast, everyone does a lot of these things. Yeah, I love that idea around the path becoming the default path. And I think what happens is, as we were talking about before, what makes this path exciting for me is the unknown, the sense of adventure, the wonder. And the key is to have enough like ambiguity and uncertainty such that wonder still emerges. There's a tendency even on these paths, I call them hustle traps, of basically just copy pasting someone else's script, right? This person is doing courses, this is what I should do. And they're disconnected from what their heart, they're disconnected from their body, they're disconnected from their passion, right? And so the only true path is the one in which you can deeply connect to yourself. I think what happens is when a path becomes legible and you can see that path using your metaphor, you're like, oh, there, there's something to follow. What happens is that the joy gets sucked out of it. There's not enough randomness. And what's happened in the modern world is we figured out how to create prosperous humans by just showing up at a job, which is pretty remarkable. A hundred years ago, people would die for these average jobs right? But now it is so predictable. And what a lot of people are doing is just performing work. They're showing up, they're just going through the motions. There's no passion, there's no joy, there's no like connection to what they're really doing. And Agnes Callard has a great framing for this. It's like ambition versus aspiration. And ambition is knowing what you're going to get at the beginning of your journey. Aspiration is not knowing what it will feel like or what values you're going to adopt at the end of your journey, right? So that's like the pathless path. 
ambition is aiming at being a managing director in finance, knowing that the payoff is a lot of money and a lot of status. You already know what you're seeking, right? So what's happening is you're taking the joy out of the process. And every religion, wise sage throughout history has advised you have to enjoy the process. So what's happened is we've created a lot of very easy paths to create wealth, prosperity, security, comfort, but they strip the joy out of the process. And this is a term I've been playing with, the serendipity economy. I think there's huge upsides to throwing yourself into working online because there is so much serendipity at play. Just us connecting and meeting. I didn't know about your stuff a month ago. I have no idea what will emerge. There could be things emerge where we work together. The thing is, our days are free in that we can make choices and opt into things. That kind of serendipity creates a lot of positive, optimistic energy in my life. And it's worth not knowing what I'll make this year, not knowing where I'll be, what I'll be working on next year. For some people, that is just so overwhelming because we're just looking at what other people are doing. If most people were following my path, people would look at people and say, you're going to do a job and just do the same thing every day? That's crazy, <laughs> right? Because that would be the non-default thing. And people would be writing about the risky job path, right? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Oh, I, I love what you were just saying. It makes me think about just this idea that uncertainty is almost the price that you pay for the possibility of having the asymmetric upside for having the potential positive outcomes right like unless you are willing to pay the price of being uncertain you don't get to enjoy the potential benefit of being happily surprised right you know you do take the risk that you might be negatively surprised but i think in some ways the certainty then becomes boring the certainty then becomes mundane because you know exactly what it's going to be like you go to work every day your boss is the same your colleagues are the same everything is the same you know what work you're going to do you know everything that's going to happen and i think that is what eventually is what drains people and what makes people feel disillusioned and frustrated because every day is the same and it's funny that you actually have to maybe embrace the willingness to go the complete opposite of that if you want to have some of the outcomes that lie outside of that as well. Yeah, and asymmetric outcomes in terms of life too. I think a lot of people don't value these things. We've narrowed life down to an economic formula and that just short circuits people's brains of imagining possibilities that are non-economic. The ability to take a bike ride for two hours in the afternoon, to me, I priced that at a million dollars an hour. It adds so much substance to my life. And I didn't know that until I actually had the space to try it. And that's the hard thing about imagining different possibilities for your life is you won't know until you try it. You can read my book and say, okay, this seems less crazy than before. But ultimately, I put at the end of the book, I think the first thing, go and find out. That's my, that is my formula, my how-to. I don't have any how-tos or frameworks in my book. It's go find out, go test this, and then tell me, like write your own stuff and tell me if it works. I want to learn from you because there's not enough people taking these paths to learn from yet. Going back to what you were saying about serendipity, what are your thoughts on this idea of making friends online and, and finding online communities, finding people that are going along the same journey? I think that's something you touched on before, but I'd love if you could expand a bit more on that. Yeah, making friends on this path is a necessary thing. It is probably the most important thing at first. Sure, spend the first six months trying to make money and make it work, but you need friends. The reason is your friends in jobs you left or the default path will not understand you and most of them will not be active cheerleaders or supporters of you. For one, they're just it's going to be too triggering for them. It's going to force them to grapple with their own insecurities. A lot of those people might drift away from you because they you might scare the crap out of them. You might have a few cheerleaders who emerge and surprise you, but you need to find people on a similar path because you need people that will not laugh at you. You need people that will give you the space to say crazy things, come up with imaginative possibilities and say, oh, that sounds interesting. Here's how I'm thinking about that. Or yeah, go for it. Finding my friend Johnny 
was so valuable to me. He walked up to me after meeting me, gave me this book. This is where I discovered the phrase, the pathless path. And along the way, we've just joked over and over again about how lost we've been at every step along the way. And we don't need to talk about how that feels because we already know. And then we can just (laughs) exist in this container of friendship that's like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing either. Let's move on to other stuff, (laughs) right? And you need those people. And I write because writing enables me to find a lot of those people. I'm living in Austin because there's just happens to be a lot of internet creators and weirdos and underemployed people and self-employed people who are here. And it's amazing. And some of these people are just so incredible. I think I've been blown away with the quality of some of the friends I've made in the past few years. And it's made almost everything worth it because when you're connecting with other people on shared vulnerability and shared just possibility, it's such an optimistic, amazing way to like start friendships because you're, you're meeting around vulnerability. You're saying, I'm scared. A lot of friendships in the modern economy are like, let's stay in touch so one day you can potentially help me. A lot of those friendships evaporate as soon as you leave the company or context. I don't talk to like a lot of people just by nature of the people who are making $500,000 working as partners at McKinsey. One, I can't afford to hang out with them. They just have fancy rich lives. And two, we just don't have the same context anymore. I want to take a bike ride at 2 p.m. on a Thursday. So I need like different kind of friends. And I'm excited to see like where that takes me. Yeah. And and just like you were saying, I think it's interesting. The serendipity, it unlocks down the line as well, because what I find interesting or different is that, okay, so I used to work in corporate law. And I think, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, I remember you mentioned that, oh, you should have just stayed at McKinsey for five years and gone off afterwards to do your own thing. That's kind of what I did. Uh, I did a bit of wandering around. I did some consulting and stuff before getting into law, but I was at my dream firm, the, the firm I'd always wanted to work at. I was there for about five years and then I ended up leaving. But I think what is interesting is that even at the beginning of this journey, some of the the friends I made or people that I encountered. So one of them is Thomas Frank, as an example, who I think is largely responsible for helping me get my first few hundred subscribers. I already had maybe like 200 and I can't even remember why we connected, but this is years and years ago. And then he just came on the podcast not too long ago. And seeing even my journey within that time, within that interim, just being able to keep in touch. I think, like you say, having those people that have an exponential growth path. And I think that's the difference. When you're working in in a corporate field or in a corporate job, very often it's a linear path. You know where you're going to be 10 years from now. That's set in stone. I know exactly, like if I stayed at the firm I was at, I know how much I'm going to be making each year. I know what job I'm going to be doing, where I'm going to be doing it. Most of it is set in stone. You can change maybe the flavor of exactly what it looks like. Here's the interesting thing. I think I would guess. I have this idea that on the default path, people sort on income. On the pathless path, people sort on interest and curiosity. I would guess Thomas gets a lot of being friends with you too. Because you're shared around your vulnerability of creating, putting yourself out there, trying different things, right? He doesn't want to connect with the McKinsey partner because they've reached a certain level of success, right? And I don't know Thomas too well, but I've loved following his stuff. Like He's still trying to figure it out too. He just figured out courses in the past year, right? And he's still trying to figure out what that means. Is it going to be a long-term thing? Is it going to stay? What platforms do you put it on? All these silly questions, but these silly questions create a shared context of figuring out things together. That is what makes this path a lot of fun. And I've befriended some people who extrinsically seem like very successful creators. But the funny thing often is, and I don't know if this is the case for Thomas, but I talked to Ali Abdal a couple of years ago, and he was terrified of quitting medicine. Why? Because his parents... And relatives don't really know what the heck he's doing with YouTube. To us, it's like, oh, he's made it. But to the rest of the world, these paths are still very weird. People just don't really understand how early it is for this stuff, right? A lot of people, even if they're making a ton of money or successful creators, their parents are saying to them, 
Why are you on this weird path? When are you going to get a real job? Are you going to be okay? Aren't you worried about this? And that's why you need to be friends with these people. So you can share and say, yeah, is your parents disapprove of what you're doing? Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a really great example that came to mind when you were just saying that is, I think it's Ben Thompson that writes the Stratechery newsletter. He started that, I think, in 2003. And I remember he was talking on a podcast and he was saying he thought it was too late at that point. Because he was looking at some people that had already started in the late 90s. And he's like, oh, you know, I wonder if it's too late, but I'm going to start this thing anyway. 2003 is now in retrospect, so far before the peak of any kind of online writing. It Like most of the platforms that people built their blogs on didn't even exist at that point in time. But it just shows how often people always think, oh, I've missed the boat or it's too late or I'm not going to necessarily be able to make it because everyone already has a YouTube channel. Everyone already has a newsletter or a podcast. But I think there's a duality there where on one hand, you shouldn't assume that just because other people have one, it's too late. Yeah. But then on the other hand, just like you mentioned earlier, you shouldn't assume that that is what you have to do simply because the people that are not taking the traditional path are doing that thing. Like there might be something else that you could explore that is not going down kind of the new desire path. Yeah, the whole too late framing is the wrong frame. This is why I keep coming back to don't find a niche, find a mode. If you can find a mode of showing up and creating things that is energizing and feels sustainable, and you can do that over a long period of time, nobody can compete with you. This is the thing. If you want to build a channel like Thomas Frank, 2.8 million subscribers, I was just checking that out. You can do that. It's actually not that hard. The hard thing is, can you be excited enough about creating videos, staying curious about ideas? So if you're a hyper curious person that loves engaging with ideas, loves connecting with other people, you're on third base already. You just need to find the space in your life to consistently show up and create and share something and you will stumble upon success. And it really doesn't matter where you're creating. There's still a scarcity of interesting creative people. And I think that surprises people just because we see so much stuff. But there's a massive scarcity. Most creators I know, all their non-creator friends, 0% of them are sharing anything or doing anything digitally or anything. Yeah, that just reminded me of on Twitter. I think I saw a stat. That I can't remember the exact stat, but the essence is when you look at all of the people that have hundreds of thousands of followers, a lot of those followers, first of all, are the same people because the majority of people don't actually tweet. Like the vast majority of people on Twitter, the reason that Elon Musk is having such a hard time figuring out who the bots are is because a lot of normal people behave just like the bots. All they do <laughs> is they don't say anything. They just go around liking stuff, following people and not actually really engaging much beyond that. They're not necessarily engaging in conversations. The bot accounts just are engagement bots. And then a lot of the ordinary people are just people bots. Like they're not doing much either, not in a negative way, but I think to show the idea that most people are just consuming really passively. And so it actually does take a lot to step beyond that and to actually start to engage. Yeah, I my big thing is a lot of people don't want to create because they see so much cringe stuff online, right? And they equate creating and sharing with being cringe, right? The fact is, if you have that default response, you're fine because you already have these parameters in your head mm -hmm. or like, I don't want to be cringe. I don't want to rip people off. I don't want to be scammy. Trust those instincts and just put your stuff out there. We need more people creating and sharing in the world. It creates permission for people to do brave things. It enables you to find things worth doing. It's so worth it. And I want more people listening to this podcast who have been thinking about doing something. 2023, let's ship it, baby. I love that. I think that's, that's a great place to end. Uh, one last question I might just ask is... I think earlier you mentioned the idea of, okay, so I think when you launched your the book, you already had like 5,000 subscribers and you had your newsletter with around 2,000 at one point. How do you, I guess it's a two-part question. W one, just going off what you were saying, how do you find yourself keeping your originality? And well, not necessarily keeping your originality. I think what people 
have trouble with is a step before that, which is finding their unique voice in the first place. So how do you find your voice and avoid falling into the trap of doing the cringy stuff or doing whatever's popular? Because for example, on Twitter, I know there's so many trends. Everyone tweets like this, then everyone tweets like this. Some people start writing threads like this, everyone starts writing threads like that. How do you keep yourself original in that respect? So I think some people just have an unbridled dopamine response and basically can't control their ability to not chase like optimization and stuff. I'm just a little lazy. So I can only consistently do what I like doing. And that has been a benefit for me because I'm default skeptical of any hack or optimization. So my stance toward it is be pragmatic and pay attention. Now, it was very clear that threads were one, an interesting way to engage with people and two, a way to build an audience. So I started doing threads. I also noticed there were threads where people would just put super scammy titles. And I just don't want followers that follow that stuff. I want to have, so I have less followers than I could have. I just riff. I just like post threads and like my random thoughts as I'm like wandering around or walking around. And I don't even, I just ship them. There's often spelling errors. I don't add the tweet at the bottom that links back to the beginning. I just don't want to do that. I'm lazy. So yeah, I very much optimize around the things I can do over the long term. I call it the long, slow, dumb, fun way or long, slow, stupid, fun way. And I don't optimize in the short term. I only optimize around designing for liking what I do. But you do need to pay attention to things. If you're going to create and share online, you do need to pay attention to trends. Sometimes these massive opportunities open up of huge engagement and you should test it. I've tested reels in the past three months. I don't really like it. Like short clips and stuff. I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's much substance or depth there. Maybe you can get a lot of followers, but I don't know. I haven't found the right formula where I can spend a decent amount of time to do it in my way. But yeah, there's obviously a massive opportunity there right now, but I haven't found a way to do it in a fun way. That's fair. So I guess that that comes back to what you were saying before, right? Optimizing for fun, finding the mode of doing things that brings you joy, and then the work and everything else comes after that. And it will fall into place if you set things up in the right way in the first place. Yeah. And this stuff is hard. The thing I I would close with is this stuff is hard. There's no easy formulas and it might suck, but it might also be worth it. And that's the opportunity we have in the world right now. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to join, Paul. I really appreciate it. Sweet. Appreciate your curiosity too, David. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.